This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. You're listening to the Mostly Harmless Podcast. At least you better be. Welcome to the Mostly Harmless Podcast. I'm your host, Dammit Damien. All right, buddies, welcome to the show. This week we are sitting down, we are chatting with Mr. Bob Surin. Now, Bob is the author behind one of my favorite book discoveries of the year. That book is Crate Digger. Crate Digger is out now on Microcosm Publishing, and the book is this really awesome uh, memoir of Bob's early, well, it's, it's about Bob's life in punk rock. It talks about his early childhood discoveries of the genre and how that discovery became an obsession. Um, he tells the stories of how he opened his first record store, Sound Idea, in Brandon, Florida. It also talks about him opening uh, the label Burrito Records out of that very same shop. Not to mention, within those hallowed halls, how he met and fell in love with his wife and how that obsession with records um, did not did not end very well for Bob and how he gets over his obsession with records. Um, here's the cool thing about the, the book is it's very much akin to a real life punk rock version of Nick Hornby's high fidelity. Only, you know, it's real life. It's autobiographical. Not only is it autobiographical, the book is alphabetical. Bob takes his favorite records and he tells real life stories that, re- that are reminded by the records. So he'll, for example, he'll tell, talk about his favorite seventh second record and the memories that that conjures, or maybe his favorite DOA record. Um, or perhaps let's flip through here and see what else the misfits walk among us. He tells about, talks about that. And then how these records played a role in the soundtrack of his life. So not only is Bob writing in a, a memoir about his life, it's alphabetical and yet it still takes on the arc of beginning, middle and end. And we're going to talk about all that in today's interview. Um, it was really cool because Bob came to Denver. It was the last two shows of his, uh, West coast tour with crate digger. And he stopped in Denver for two shows. He did one reading at Wax Tracks, and he did another reading at a record swap at the Seventh Circle Music Collective, the DIY music venue here in town. And what was really cool was all these um, all these people that used to live in Brandon, Florida, in the surrounding areas that had known Bob or maybe were characters in the book as well. Uh, his buddy Mike is mentioned very often in the book. Um, these people that Bob in his record store and his bands had touched came out and, you know, there was probably a good seven or eight people here in Denver that Bob had touched and Bob had worked with and uh, helped mold into uh, functioning punk rock adults like myself. And it kind of makes you question what your role is in life and maybe if, if, like me, myself, talking, being a fool talking into a microphone might be further changing other people's lives. I get I get emails all the time about... You know, hey man, listen to your podcast. I decided to start my own podcast, or I decided to start this band, or I got into this band and I met this person at that show because of that thing you you played or that thing you said, and and it really makes you wonder how wide your reach may be, even if you're just doing small stuff. So you never know, buddies. You never know. Um, so it was really great meeting Bob and chatting with him about all these things and more. 
Um, before we get into that, Mostly Harmless is brought to you by Ratio Beer Works. Ratio is Denver's premier punk rock brewery. If you're around the Rhino area of Denver, 2920 Larimer Street, it's just, Ratio is just a block north of the Larimer Lounge, maybe about nine, ten blocks away from the Marquee and Summit Music Halls. And, uh, you know, stop in, grab yourself a repeater IPA named for the Fugazi record, or maybe an antidote which is, of course, named for uh, the Gamets. Local local legends, the Gamets, have their own beer at Ratio Beer Works. And then, you know, maybe if uh, IPAs and aren't your style, maybe check out the Domestica Lager, named after the Cursive album. Uh, they always host cool events there, like monthly comedy shows, which I co-host with uh, Mr. Ian Douglas Terry. Uh, we're going to be doing some in-store meet-and-greet kind of performance deals there at ratio coming up soon stay tuned for that and always uh they have a friday birkin specialty beer limited for that one day only uh each and every friday so stop by ratiobeerworks.com like them on facebook and find out more and uh before we get into today's interview i want to play a quick track from one of bob's more infamous bands the band is failure face uh not only is crate digger a book bob also recorded an audiobook and bob's readings are pretty intense and pretty great. Uh, his two at Wax Tracks and Seven Circle, you know, very reminiscent of like early Henry Rollins and stuff like that. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, so we're going to play a song from Failure Face. And before that, we're also going to play the uh, the trailer for Crate Digger. So uh, right now, let's get let's go ahead and do that, buddies. Let's listen to the trailer for the audiobook of Hu- of Crate Digger, and listen to the track "Human Cancer" from Failure Face, and then we'll get into our interview with Bob from the Seventh Circle. So uh, let's take a little listen, guys. I began collecting records, a pursuit with no end. I saw each record as a piece of a fascinating puzzle. With each piece, the picture became more detailed. Each piece brought deeper understanding to this genre, its history, and its ideologies. I ran the Burrito Records label and Sound Idea, a record distribution and store, for 18, 16, and 14 years respectively. With the music came travel, friendship, assholes, hard work, satisfaction, and disappointment. And I found the person I fell in love with. This book is a patchwork of memories, profiling some of the most important records in my life. This book is like a long conversation between two friends in a room full of records. I'm glad you're here with me, friend. Yeah! 
Hey, buddy, stay tuned after the episode for an excerpt from the Crate Digger audiobook. Almost a year. It's a lot of work. It, it is, and especially, like, I work 40 hours a week, so, like, when you're done done with a day job and you come home and it's like... I've, I've recently started doing comedy and running a comedy show, so that's extra work. So I'm, like, 60 hours a week and then trying to find time to do this. I did uh, one of these reading events at a comedy club in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, and I'm thinking about doing comedy myself. It's, uh, it's one of those things, like, I don't... I was telling Joseph, he... Uh, I interviewed him last week. He's uh, the found, co-founder of Side One Dummy Records. I was telling him, like, I don't, I enjoy it, but I don't have the love of it that everyone else does. I'm hoping that if I keep working at it, maybe the love will come. But I know from experience, it's probably not, probably not the way it's going to work. But, but I like, I like getting up and telling stories in front of people. Yeah. I think it's the comedy part. I'm not too, too psyched for. But yeah, I've seen some people bomb, man. It's got to be painful. <laughs> So, all right, let's roll. Yeah. So, um, so, how has your time in Denver been? You've been here since Halloween? I got here on Halloween. Halloween was the only day off I've had on this tour. I met up with a friend. She showed me around town a little bit. We went out Halloween night, and it was really cool. And uh, since then, I walked around in Red Rocks a little bit. Today, I went to the Botanical Garden and just hung out at some coffee shops. I hit the YMCA, got in some exercise and a shower, and... Yeah, Denver looks like a really cool place. Yeah, this is your first time through here. My first time wow, in Denver. That's crazy. Yeah, and I got a three-day, three-day layover here. What do you? I heard you saying you didn't think you could handle the cold. So probably I think not it would probably relocate. be too cold for yeah. me. Yeah, I moved to Austin, Texas, two years ago. In the first winter, I moved to Austin. The Austin winter was too cold for me. So I'd say that the Denver winter would definitely be too yeah, right. cold for me. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you hang, you hung out here last night at the Seventh Circle. I heard yeah, you had a good time. I did. Um, <laughs> I mistakenly read I read this comment that you posted on Facebook that a uh, 16-year-old kid talked about how important it was supporting the scene. It did. When I got here, um, uh, this young man was talking to me. I don't know if he was 16, but he looked about 16. Right. And don't they all when you did, get older? Yeah, and I mean, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know that I was in bands and put out records and ran a record store and stuff. And um, Somebody handed me a flyer, or I handed him a flyer or something, and it was like, oh, yeah, it's very important to, to support this. You know, you have to, you know, you have to tell people about this stuff because there aren't a lot of places like this. He was very, very earnest, and yeah. it was touching. <laughs> it was touching to see a young person who gets it. Do you remember being like that kid? Yes, I do. Yeah, and obviously. I, I, I still am. Yeah. I still am. I'm 46. I'll be 47 pretty soon, and I still think it's important to support yeah. the scene. I am a little more removed from the scene at 46 than I was when I was 26, but I still understand the value of punk rock and DIY. And when I walked into this place last night and I saw a whole bunch of young people having a good time and having a positive place to hang out, I thought, this is wonderful. This is the coolest DIY space I've seen in ages, and I hope it lasts a long, long time. Yeah, Aaron's been doing some killer stuff over here. Yeah. It's been a great spot. It seems um, wonderful. It seems like it's in a part of town where nobody's going to mess with you. Yeah. And um, he's, I can't believe all the stuff he's gotten to do through here. Um, but one, one thing I like about the book is that it still oozes with that enthusiasm of that 16 year old Bob uh, echoing throughout the, uh, throughout the book. Well, I still, I still appreciate the value in punk rock. There are a lot of people my age or younger that think that punk rock ended in 1986 yeah. or 1988 or whatever. But punk rocks, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I don't think punk will ever die because 
it's always going to be important to somebody. And if you're 45, 46 years old and you think punk rock is stupid and you don't fit in anymore, fine. Just go do whatever else it is you want to do. Go play golf or go collect stamps and let these young kids who are having a blast have a blast just like nobody nobody pissed on your parade (laughs) when you were 16 years old there was nobody telling you punk is dead go home well there were so in my day but yeah i guess there were a couple too but the thing is if it's not relevant to you move on and leave it to the people who are still enjoying it and if i find myself at a show and i'm not having a great time i leave because i don't want to be a downer yeah and um you know what, what's cool about the what, what I like about you, Bob, is that um, you know you ran a record label, you ran a record store, you were in bands, you've done zines, you did a podcast, you've done everything. How did you figure out you could do so much in such in a time when there wasn't the ability and means necessarily to do it? I didn't know that I could do it. I just wanted to be involved, and I said nothing's. Punk, this is punk rock. You don't need permission. Yeah. Just jump in. And most of it I learned on the job. And it was just a natural progression from being in a band to putting out a record, to becoming a record distribution company, to opening a record store, to promoting concerts, to writing a zine, to uh, just everything just seemed like the next logical step. And I didn't realize the, the massive body of work until it was time for me to quit. And then I was like, man, I did a lot of stuff. Yeah. And it, I, I was oblivious to it. And it was just one of those cases where you can't see the forest for the trees or whatever that saying is. But um, a couple days before my record store went out of business in 2008, I just had a moment where I was just taken aback. I was just trying to think of all the bands that had played in that record store and all the work that we'd done in that record store, all the records we assembled, all the T-shirts we printed there. And... I was just like, I said to one of my employees, I was like, man, we got a lot of stuff done here. And he's like, no <laughs> shit. He's like, is, are, is that just occurring to you now? I was like, I never had a breather. <laughs> I never had the time to sit back and look at it from an outsider's perspective. Because I was always so deep into it that I just didn't have breathing time. And finally, when it was all winding down, it just occurred to me. It's like, this was pretty monumental. Yeah. Um, and... So I have this vision of these kids, maybe not these kids that we're looking at right here, but maybe the kid that's afraid to come down here, um, that maybe somehow he'll find this and hear, or somebody will pass it along to him. But like, I remember being a 16-year-old kid and being afraid to like get up off the couch and participate. But now that I'm doing it in my 30s, and I find like it's hard work, but it's easy hard work and it's rewarding. Yeah. Do you find the experience of everything that you've done, you know, as hard as some of it may have been? Do you, how, how rewarding have you found your experience in life? Of course, it was rewarding. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, not to get too philosophical, but people are the sum of their experiences. Yeah. And whether they're good experiences or bad experiences, whether it was. Uh, hard work or was something really shitty that happened to you it's made you what you are so uh, yeah all that hard work that, that I put into punk rock every every show I ever played every record I ever put out every t-shirt I ever printed was just a little tiny building block and I think the finished product I think it's something to be proud of and um, yeah, it's definitely it was it's been a worthwhile trip. Nice. Even even through all the heartbreak and heartache. Yeah, I mean 
I'm still here. <laughs> so, and I think I, I came out of 30 years of punk rock plus. Um, not unscathed, but as I say in one of the chapters in the book, a better, kind of a better person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I liked about the book is, you know, I read High Fidelity. I read High Fidelity at 17. Have you read High Fidelity? I haven't read it. I saw no. the movie. Uh, the, they're pretty close companions to each other. Um, I read the book when I was 17, didn't get it. Read it again at 28, got it completely. You know, it's about record obsession and heartbreak. But at the end, you know, he kind of gets the girl. One thing I like about your book, it's very... It's written in a voice that I can understand. It's written very closely to my voice. I understand a lot of stories. Um, but it's kind of like a real, probably a closer to real life high fidelity. Do you get that from that at all? Do you, like, you're telling your, your, your experiences in punk rock and music. You get the girl, you lose the girl. Right. Spoiler alert. Sorry for right. those that haven't read it. Um, what was the question exactly? You know, I don't even know. I just <laughs> uh, Is it more realistic? I guess, yeah, well, it is realistic because well, it's autobiographical. That, I guess that's the thing I was getting at is yeah. it, it's kind of like this realistic, it's very romantic in a way. Yeah. Um, you, maybe it's because I'm so closely related to the subject matter. I, I grew up in small town Louisiana. I didn't open a record store, but I started doing zines and touring and whatnot and then found my own path. Um, and I have no idea where I'm trying to go with that, other than I really, really enjoyed the damn book. Thank and it you. Felt I've been really getting a lot life. of I've been getting a lot of nice feedback from it. I haven't seen any bad reviews, and I'm getting a lot of what I can only call fan mail, yeah. uh, mostly through Facebook, and sometimes in person. People are coming up to me at these events and saying, "I picked up your book on Amazon, or I picked it up from Microcosm. Yeah. I got it through the Kickstarter program, and it really um, hit home with me." And so far, nothing but nice things people have said about it. I didn't know what kind of response there would be. I just knew I had to do it. Yeah. And it feels really good to get this feedback. It's the, it's the payment. Yeah, I, I, I once dated a girl that wrote for an alt-weekly. She quit the alt-weekly and got just a boring desk job. And I asked her once on one of the... We didn't date for long. And I asked her, I was like, what is your creative output now? Where do you get your creative juices out? And she just looked at me and she said she didn't understand. Right. Um, so I take it this book was kind of... Uh, it needed to, to be done. Yeah. It needed to be done. And I'm glad it's found a home. It took me uh, eight months to find a publisher. Because uh, I was initially, I had written the book. For those of you who have not read it, it's a book about punk rock. But I tried to write it in a very accessible way. So even if you read the chapter about Sorto, <laughs> or the Bad Brains, or Toxic Reasons, and you've never heard of those bands, you will understand the stories. And I let an, an older co-worker of mine, who I think she's about 70, read the book. And she goes, I've never heard of any of this music, but I love the stories. Right. And I'm going to try to find some of these bands. And then a few days later she said, I looked up some of those bands on YouTube and I don't like them. <laughs> but I still like the stories. So my point is, I wrote this book in a way that anybody could read it. Uh, my mother read the book and she understood it. My sisters and my, my dad read the book and they understand it. So you don't have to be a punk rocker to like this book, and I wrote it for a mass audience, and I initially tried to sell it to big publishers so it could be in libraries and in airports and in bookstores, Barnes & Nobles, all over the world. That hasn't quite happened. Yeah, time will I, tell. I couldn't find a major publisher who was interested. It took, it took me eight months of rejection, and then I gave up for a while, and then a friend encouraged me to give it another shot. And then I tried the independent route, and after four days of 
uh, going down my list of independent publishers, I found a home for the book. It was, oh, yeah. and it was uh, from first contact to signed contract. It was about ninety minutes. Nice. I hit up Microcosm, Joe Beal, who owns Microcosm, is like, I know who you are. I've bought records from you. Uh, these two sample chapters are good. Do you want to sign a contract? Here's a contract. And I was like, wow, isn't that fast? Do you want to read the whole book first? He's like, nope. Here's a contract. <laughs> so. Uh, unbelievable how fast it came together once I found the right guy and Microcosm is absolutely the right home for this they know how to promote this yeah. kind of book whereas like a big publisher like Random House might not have known how to promote this book and and they, they approached me they came to me and were like um, I'd hit them up about doing something about Punk USA the Lookout Records book Yes. and they were like hey we think you would really really like this book we're going to go ahead and send you an advanced copy and I, I actually put Punk USA down I didn't finish it I, I finished it eventually, but I picked up Crate Digger and was like, I, I got to read this first. Uh, uh, and I, I flew through it. That's what everybody's telling me. Most people are telling me that they read it in a day or two. Yeah. They tell me they read it in one, two, three sittings. Yeah. It's a fast read. It was a fast write. It only took me about four or five months to write it. And I wrote it very conversationally. And we just finished the audiobook version of it. The audiobook version is six hours and ten minutes, so it's like having a six hour and ten minute conversation with me. And between maybe every other chapter, there are songs. So, for instance, you hear MDC, the, the chapter about MDC, and then you hear an MDC song. And then you hear, you know, the chapter about Minor Threat, and you hear a Minor Threat song. So it is like a mixtape hidden within an audiobook, nice. which I don't believe has ever been done before. And also, it's the first audiobook Microcosm Publishing has ever put out. So we're all very excited about that. And the book has been submitted to the 2017 Grammys. Doesn't mean I'm going to win. <laughs> all it means is we filled out the application and the it, that somebody will look at it. Nice. But wouldn't it be cool to win a Grammy for this punk rock thing? Well, one of the things I liked about the book was that it's presented all, um, alphabetically as yeah. a record collection might be. Yeah. But it, and it tells the story still in like a very fluid beginning, middle, and end. That mostly, that mostly just worked out accidentally. Yeah. Um, there were a couple things that when we were doing the editing, there were a couple of spoilers in the early chapters that we just deleted so that it does have a definite story arc. There was one chapter that was cut completely. It was a chapter about the clash, C. So that was very early yeah. in the book. And the publisher's like, this gives away too much of the story. We can't have this here. And it doesn't fit anywhere else because it's about the clash. <laughs> also, it's... Um, maybe just way too personal so that chapter got cut and then there were a few redundancies that got cut but on the whole the book that the the, the reader reads is almost exactly the book that i submitted to the publisher there weren't very many changes made to it it took us about five days of uh editing and we only lost about six pages in the entire edit and most of the cuts were redundancies and very varies and really reallys uh, weak filler words like that and like I said we lost that one chapter about the clash that I still have on my computer that I think is it's a really good chapter just didn't fit in the book where we needed it to be nice yeah it, it'll, maybe the sequel maybe there will going. be a sequel sequel um, yeah. I, I saw your performance yesterday at Wax Tracks thanks you have an audio book out you were a singer in bands you kind of have this fearlessness when you get up in front of an audience have you always been a fearless individual no <laughs> um, I started playing in bands in 1985 Cut. and it was tough 
I told a story last night about the first show I ever played because it was 30, 30 years ago yesterday. So to celebrate my 30 years, 30 years of performing, I told the story of my first public performance, which ended with me getting punched in the nuts. So and <laughs> uh, it wasn't an easy entry into public performance. Um, there were lots of times people booed my bands. There were lots of times people threw garbage at me. Um, but like I said earlier, you are the sum of your experiences and those hard knocks make you a better person. So if, you, if you're in a band and you have a shitty show and people boo you and throw garbage at you, you have some practice to do yeah. and you learn something from the experience and you put up with that over and over and over again and you're going to come out of it tough as nails. What's the experience like taking a book on tour versus a record and a band and whatnot? It's Plus. so much easier. This is the whole load in the shoulder bag that weighs like 15 pounds is the only thing that I have. And uh, it's no more carrying amplifiers and drums up and down stairs. And it's just me. It's not three or four other guys in the van. We're not fighting about where to eat, where to stop, who has to go to the bathroom, and what we can listen to on the stereo. I really do like traveling alone, the long solo drives. I didn't think I would like the driving so much, but some of the long drives have been very zen you know you just put on some chill music and you focus on the horizon and before you know it you've been driving for six or seven hours yeah. and when you get out of the car you feel kind of relaxed and kind of kind of floaty and i kind of like it so i do like this solo uh touring stuff and i do like these reading performances because it's uncharted territory for me yeah. people keep asking me i've been living in austin texas for about two years and people in austin keep saying you want to start a band with me or you should be in a band again and I say no I played in bands for 28 years it's the comfort zone and it would be treading water to play in a band I could do I could become the singer in a band with with a blindfold on I could do it like that and it's not fulfilling to me anymore and I don't know if I have any more good lyrics in me to tell you the truth <laughs> but these spoken word things they are a blast and I'm not limited to uh, an 85 second punk rock song right. to express myself and it doesn't have to rhyme A B A B it's totally free form. I read, a, I, I do like a little introduction that's unscripted, and I read a chapter from the book, and then I do a segue into the next chapter, unscripted, and I try to do something a little bit different every night. And it's exciting. And it didn't occur to me that this was some shit that I've never done before <laughs> until about two hours before my first reading of my first tour. I was packing up to leave to uh, do this reading in Austin at a place called Monkey Wrench Books, and I went, wow. I'm about to do something I've never done before <laughs> and I'm about to go on tour and I'm about to do like 37 things in 25 cities that I'm not getting paid for and my only source of income for the next 25 days for the next 5,500 miles is a book that I have to sell and people don't want to buy books I hope I can sell some books and as it turned out that first tour was like 37 readings in 24, 25 days, and I sold 246 books. Hell yeah. Which did really well. It more than paid for gas and food. I came home with some money in my pocket, which never happened on a punk yeah. rock tour. <laughs> this tour is going a little bit slower. This tour, I haven't sold as many books. I've had a couple of low turnout nights, but I'm still way ahead on money somehow. Yeah. Maybe because I'm driving a hybrid. <laughs> but uh, this tour has been a little bit tougher. The drives are a little longer. Gas and food are more expensive on the West Coast. 
but it's still going really well. And my phone died this morning, so I had to plunk down $150 this morning on a new phone. I thought, oh, I'm going to go home with this much money in my pocket. I'll be able to pay my rent and everything. And then I had to buy a new phone this morning. So still going all right. Tomorrow I start the 14-hour drive back to Austin. Mm and it's totally worthwhile and if you've never been on a tour before it's one of those character building experiences that everybody should have Uh, if you've never been in a band if you have any inkling at all to express yourself creatively I highly suggest being in a band, especially a punk rock band, because there are just so many opportunities for punk rock. Uh, it's, it's probably easier to be in a punk rock band than any other kind of band, because there are more opportunities to you. There's yeah. more places you'll be accepted. There's more places you'll be able to play. There's a network in place that will help you from place to place, and I think that's a really cool thing. So uh, being in a band was worthwhile when I was in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, and now that I'm 45, this thing is very worthwhile this is my creative outlet and i hope to do some more writing and i hope to do some more speaking and i want to go on another spoken word tour and i want to do stuff that isn't in the book last night at at, uh, wax tracks i read something that's not in the book and um yeah i'm gonna do a lot more of this stuff (laughs) Uh, i like that your buddy mike who played a pivotal part in the book is yeah, here. Mike, oh, uh, I'll wrap it yeah. up real quick. In yeah, here. Mike, my friend Mike McGuire, who in the book is identified as the Reverend fucking Mike Anarchy. He's in four or five stories in the book, and he happened to be at the Denver show last night. So I knew he was going to be there, so I did. I read all the Mike stories last night, and uh, I, I think he remembered all of them. Uh, he seemed to be smiling and laughing the whole time, yeah. and he hadn't read the book. I gave him a copy of the book yesterday, and I hope he approves of the way he's been portrayed I think he will yeah what's it like reconnecting with all these old old characters it's really past? it's really cool not only am I meeting people from my past that I haven't seen in years and years I'm making new friends and in some cases I'm meeting like punk rock royalty I met Brian Baker in Washington DC yeah. I met Alec Mackay in Washington DC I met um, Bob Weber the uh, drummer of really red in in uh, in uh, Houston, Texas, I reconnected with Dave Dichter in Portland. I've met Dave several times. It was it was cool. I show up to my show in Portland. The first person who walks in is Dave Dichter. Early, <laughs> early for for a punk rock event. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, new people, old people, young people, people you know who are my age and older. I think there's something in this book and I think there's something in the scene for all ages that's one of the things I really love about punk rock is it it truly at its best is not elitist it's truly at its best is egalitarian and you can be any color you can be any age you can be any sexuality and in the best of cases you're welcome in punk rock there are some scenes that are a little closed-minded there are some individuals who are a little closed-minded but punk rock is supposed to be where all are welcome and that's one of the things that I really like Hell yeah. yeah. Um, starting to wrap it up just real quick. Okay. Um, your rec- your record store, Sound mm-hmm. Idea. Yes. That, uh, Brandon, Florida? Brandon, Florida, suburb of Tampa. Nice. Um, how often do you get emails from people telling you about the impact of that store, what it had on their lives? All the time. There's uh, two or three of them here tonight who didn't even know each other. <laughs> they missed each other at the store by a year or two. But there's a few old Sound Idea kids, 
some of the old Sound Idea crowd is here tonight in Denver, and that's really cool. And I just introduced them, and I think they're talking to each other now about mutual friends and mutual experiences. And you know, having this kind of legacy, did you know? You obviously probably didn't know then what you were creating and what you were giving away. How does it feel to look back upon that and be like, I helped usher these kids into this world? And it feels good. Um, At one point, though, I did understand the idea of a legacy. In 2003, I had a friend who passed away way too early, and I thought, my goodness, what what has he left behind? What will he be remembered by? Will people forget about him in a couple of years? And thankfully, they have not. And I thought, that could be me. I could, I could die just like that. I could get hit by a car. I could have a brain aneurysm. I could be killed by a drunk driver. A piano could fall on my head. And then what would there be left of me? And that was in 2003. And in, in 2003... I really picked up the steam and I started putting out more records and, and playing music harder and harder and putting on more events. And I really did say, I'm not going to have children. I want to be remembered for something. So, I mean, maybe a little bit of that is ego. <laughs> I guess all of that is ego. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I, was, I thought, I, I want to be known for something. I want to put a mark on this world. And punk rock's been my way to do that. Nice. And so last night when I saw your Facebook message, yeah. Um, from the 16-year-old kid. Yeah. I misread it. Oh. I thought it I thought it was the 16-year-old kid. The 16-year-old kid came up to me and told me how important I was in the music scene. Oh, no, no. And uh, that's not what he said. No. But I, I want to get to the fact that I think you are and will continue <laughs> to be. You know, through this book uh, and through your record store. Yeah, beyond. it's cool. I, I kind of have one foot in punk and one foot out of punk. I'm doing a lot of these very punk rock venues, talking to punk rockers. But... I also have a little bit of distance from punk rock, too. Yeah. I'm not as involved in the scene as I, as I used to be. I don't have to worry about scene politics and stuff. I can dress however I want. I can go however I want. I can pretty much do whatever I want, and yeah. um, it's me, and it works. And I really like that. It's, it's, it's a pretty cool position to be in. I think I'm handling my 40s yeah. pretty well. I think I'm still kind of cool. But I, I, I don't think I look ridiculous. Like, I see a lot of dudes in their 40s who are still trying to pull off the purple mohawk. Right now. And it's like, come on, man. So I think um, there's a way to um, age gracefully. There's a way to still remain relevant and hip. And I think some people like Ian Mackay and Henry Rollins have pulled it off pretty well. And um, I, I, those are the guys that I, I'm kind of looking to. Nice. And uh, I'm expressing myself in different ways. I'm not going to be up on stage screaming into a microphone for the rest of my life. And that, that was one of the cool things of Wax Tracks yesterday, and I'm sure we're about to witness here at Seven Circle, was I, 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 I'm 34, I missed the Rollins reading in bookstores thing. Yeah. But I got that vibe from you and what's going on now and what you're doing now. So you're kind of carrying that torch still. <laughs> I get the Rollins comparison a lot, which I take as high flattery, but Henry Rollins is a hundred times more talented, famous, and important, and rich. Probably a million times more, probably 12 million times more rich than me, but um, yeah, definitely Rollins, of course, was an inspiration, and I'm treading some of the same ground as him now. I'm doing it on a much smaller scale. Well, he started on a small scale, too. He started on a small scale, too. He started doing all this and he understood the value of promotion he understood that no interview was a waste of time he understood that no gig was a waste of time even if you play to one or two people at least you're honing your craft maybe you're getting through to one or two people i will play to any size crowd 
So I'll play anywhere that people will have me. And there's been a couple of mismatches. I've done a couple of bars and coffee shops that didn't go over that great. But like I said, the experience, you put that in the bank and those all those little experiences add up. You know, like you can think of some experiences as a penny, some experiences as a quarter or a dollar or a five dollar bill. And when you add them all up, it, 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 it gets you somewhere. And that's yeah. all in the book, too. That's all you, and that's all in the yeah, book. Yeah, it is. Blood, yeah, it sweat, is. and tears. Yeah, it is. And um, what's, what's next for Bob? I was in Portland a week and a half ago. Publisher wants another book out of me. Great. We kicked around a couple of ideas. I don't know what it's going to be, but we got like three ideas that are juggling in the air. They want an answer out of me pretty soon. They want me to do a tour in 2016 with another one of their readers. So I'm going to do that. We were talking about sending me to Europe to go to some countries where people understand English, like England and Scotland and Wales and Germany and Holland and Belgium. I said, is it economically feasible to ship a bunch of my books over there and get a vehicle for me? And they said they think it is. Hell yeah. So there might be the Crate Digger European tour as well. At one point, we were talking about doing a podcast, but I don't know if I have time in my life to do a <laughs> podcast anymore. I know the feeling. <laughs> uh, yeah. But they love me because... I say yes to almost everything. And I, I sat down with him and I said, any opportunity you get for an interview, any opportunity you get for me to appear somewhere, anything that I can write for, if I can write an introduction for a book, if I can write an article for a blog, if you, if you think of me, send it my way and I'm probably going to do it unless I'm not qualified. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope to be able to um, continue expressing myself with the written word and the spoken word as long as possible. It is a creative outlet, and it is a mini, mini source of income at this point. Nice. Very small source of income, but a source of income nonetheless. And I would like to keep doing it. If my job could be driving around the country talking to punk rockers about punk, I would. that would be a great job, wouldn't it? Right yeah. now, it's like kind of a part-time, part-time job. If it could be my full-time job, I would totally do it. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Uh, anything else you want to throw out there before I let you uh, rest your voice for a few minutes before you're reading? Um, if you got an idea, if there's something you think you should do, don't uh, don't sleep on it too long nice. because you're going to lose the, the motivation and then you're never going to get around to doing it. If you get some crazy idea at 3 o'clock in the morning, get up and write it down on a piece of paper and the next day get started on it. If you don't do that, your idea is going to die and then, uh, you know, you don't get anything. It's better to, to you know try these crazy ideas and maybe even fail than to not try them. So um, I guess just go for it is what I'd like to say. Hell yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks Thank for hanging you. out and thanks, chatting man. with me. This is honestly, I love the book. It's a real pleasure to chat with you. Hopefully, we'll get, maybe we'll get you back up here again. And we'll do it again soon. Thanks very much. Send me a link for this and I'll promote it. Hell yeah. All right, okay. I got to get in there. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. I'll see you in there in a minute. All right, buddies. Please stay tuned after my rambling outro for an excerpt from the Crate Digger audiobook. This chapter is going to deal with Bob's wife, Ella, and how he met her by founding the Sound Idea record store in Brandon, Florida. I think it's a really good intro to the book. Uh, please check out that book right now. It is out on Microcosm Publishing. You can find that at microcosmpublishing.com. We'll also have links to where you can buy it on mostlyharmlesspodcast.com. While you're over at mostlyharmlesspodcast.com, please like us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, follow me on Twitter. Uh, we're also on Stitcher, TuneIn, and all major podcasting avenues. Uh, and please, if you pick up the book if you like the book please email me let me know uh it's not very often i hear back from people who are like oh man i discovered this because of you 
Uh, I, I really appreciated it. I really enjoyed it. And after today's chat, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. So if you could, please, that would be fantastic. And buddies, I've rambled long enough. Uh, you don't, I, I'm just a fool with a microphone, like I said earlier. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to that Crate Digger audiobook outro. Ella, it is again out now on Microcosm Publishing. And buddies, you take care now. We'll see you in the funny pages. Who? Ella. In late February 1995, I moved across the state of Florida from Stewart on the Atlantic coast to Brandon, a suburb of Tampa, to open a record store. The Tampa area had a lively music scene, and I wanted to be part of it. Brandon seemed like a great place for a record store with so many young people and active bands. I had been a regular visitor to the vicinity for a few years and made a handful of friends, but basically I was diving into unknown waters. I had an appointment with a real estate guy to look at a storefront on the corner of Kings Avenue in Oakfield in Brandon, but the guy stood me up. So I went exploring the town on my own, looking for vacancies. A red and white for rent sign on the corner of State Road 60 and Parsons caught my eye. The strip mall had a western look with rickety plank sidewalks and chunky wooden square support beams holding up a wooden shingle awning over the walkway. The storefront was long and narrow. The whole place kind of looked like a ranch. I liked it. The rent was a little out of my price range, but I had enough money in the bank to make a gutsy gambit. I offered the landlord half the rent he was asking and told him I would pay cash in full right then for an entire year. I was not sure he'd go for it, but I had nothing to lose by asking. It got his attention. It was much less money, but he'd get a huge wad of cash all at once and not have to worry about this cocky asshole for a full year. I figured the guy would pocket the cash and keep it off the books. After mulling it over for a day and a half, the landlord called me back with a counteroffer. 70% of his original asking price paid month to month on a one-year lease. It was still a good deal, so I took it. I stayed in that spot for a little shy of 14 years. My rent went up every couple of years, but by the time I went out of business, I still was not paying his 1995 asking price. I attribute part of the store's longevity to that crazy offer I made on the day I found the place. I moved in, and with the help of Brian, R, and Kevin, we whipped the place into shape in a matter of weeks. For several days, I was constantly driving a couple of miles west on State Road 60 to a national chain hardware store for supplies. One day, one of the guys asked me, why don't you just use the hardware store across the street? I didn't know there was a hardware store across the street. I never noticed it, but there it was, Brandon Supply, one of the oldest businesses in town. As I went to check out, I noticed the cashier was a stunning woman, maybe a few years younger than me. Most striking were huge, intense blue eyes. I was captivated. She rang up my purchase and smiled her lovely, sincere smile. Her voice was friendly, clear, and warm. I blushed a little. I walked across the street in a elated daze, wondering why such a beautiful woman was working at a gritty hardware store. Back at the record shop, Kevin and Brian R. were working on something, and Rob was hanging out, watching the progress. I was still glowing from seeing such a riveting woman. I excitedly told the guys about her and asked if they noticed her. You mean the one with the crazy blue eyes, Brian R. asked? Yes, I said, but they're not crazy. They're beautiful. I'm going to ask her out. Good luck, said Rob. They all laughed. I didn't have a good track record with pretty girls, but this was a new town. Nobody knew me yet. That pretty girl at the hardware store didn't know anything about me. I had a chance. I walked back with the intention of getting thumbtacks, an air conditioning filter, and a date. When I entered Brandon's supply, I noticed the pretty girl was not at the cash register. I hoped she hadn't gone home for the day. Just as I was worrying that I'd missed her, she walked straight up to me and asked if I needed help. 
I can still see her in her denim overalls. I asked her to help me find the thumbtacks and the air conditioning filter. She took me right to them, and I still have that pack of red thumbtacks. I never use them. Is there anything else, she asked. She was still smiling. Yes. Would you like to go out with me? I looked down at my shoes, a little embarrassed and expecting a no. Yes. Still smiling, now broader, more beautiful, shining. She answered without the slightest hesitation, as if I'd asked her the time. I didn't even know her name. Ella. To this day, I consider asking her out the greatest decision I've ever made. Months later, I asked her why she said yes. She said she thought I was cute and that I seemed harmless. She said she liked my shoes and she checked out my ass the first time I was in the store. We picked an evening, the soonest one we could agree on. Our first date was at a Mexican restaurant. I had not been on a date in a while and never with a woman as attractive as Ella. I was talking too much, too loud and too fast. I felt like I was out of control. I kept telling myself to calm down and to not fuck this up. Ella could sense my nervousness. Just before our dinner came, she winked at me with her right eye. It was funny and sexy and flirty all at once. It seemed to say, relax, I like you. And after dinner, you'll get to kiss me. This wink is my favorite memory in the world. I've replayed it hundreds of times. I wish I could return to that second. We had more dates. I fell in love with Ella fast and hard. One night when we were sitting somewhere, I told her that I loved her. This took her by surprise. She hesitated but responded, I love you too. She didn't mean it, not yet, I could tell. It was okay. I don't know exactly when Ella fell in love with me, but I can tell you when I'm sure she was there. I was renting a bedroom from a family in Brandon. They had a swimming pool. Ella spent the night in my room many times. One night, we decided to go swimming. I gave her one of my t-shirts to wear. In the pool, I cradled her in my arms and twirled her around in the water. It was like ballroom dancing. Her hair was wet. She was smiling her perfect smile. Her eyes gleamed better than the stars. We looked at each other, and I just knew it. That was when I was sure she loved me back. We stayed together for a very long time. Seven years after our first date, almost to the exact day, we were married. People asked us why we waited so long. The time just flew by. We didn't think that getting married would make us love each other more, so it didn't seem that important. You hear people say that all the time. But when we finally did get married, I do think I loved her more. It made me feel closer to her. I consider marrying Ella my greatest accomplishment.